Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 77, recorded on June 24th, 2020. The Cloud Pod enjoys a lovely snow cone. Good evening, Ryan, Jonathan, and Peter. Hey, Justin. I'm melting. How are you? <laughs> oh. I mean, I'm not melting yet, but uh, my hammock gets sticky if it gets melting too much. I have to turn off my air conditioning here since they're window units in order to record, but I'm just fine even though it's 90 degrees outside. What a guy. Ooh, yeah, yeah. It's so warm. Yeah. Hot-blooded. You'll just have a shower after the show, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we have uh, another week full of exciting news here. Uh, the uh, the first one of the week is uh, from a cloud partner, HashiCorp. Uh, they've launched their new multi-cloud automation platform uh, after getting a new round of funding, putting them at a $5.1 billion valuation. Uh, this new service is the HashiCorp cloud platform, uh, which is going to make their tools available as a managed service to customers uh, can use them more easily. Uh, this isn't a total surprise, as founder Armin Dadgar last year said on theCUBE, the irony of HashiCorp is we're a cloud infrastructure company, but we sell desktop software. There's an obvious disconnect here, there, but how do we write that and say people want to consume this stuff as a service? How do we meet them where they are? And now they are doing that with the new HashiCorp Google Cloud, uh, cloud platform. Uh, this will create a unified infrastructure automation layer spanning Amazon Web Services, Azure, and Google Cloud. Customers will be able to centrally manage resources across all of these clouds using Hashi's tools through a common set of APIs. Uh, of course, they announced this very amazing multi-cloud vision uh, and all this great tooling and announced that the first version of this only supports console on AWS. So way to go. <laughs> way to go, Google Spanner. You never want to go Google, full Google Spanner, but they did. That's where we're at. Uh, I did give our sales rep appropriate level of crap about this, that you can't, you can't go full Google Spanner. Uh, they do consider this to be an alpha version. Uh, and they are looking for feedback and your usage of their console capabilities. So uh, that's pretty awesome. If you're a console user, now you can get it managed in the cloud. Everything they do is an alpha version. Even yeah, the production really. versions. Yeah, even the release versions. Yeah. I thought they already had a managed cloud offering. They do in Azure for console. It's like yeah. through the marketplace you can purchase like a managed uh, console service. And they also have that... Um, I think it's the Terraform cloud service where you can store your state in their online service. Uh, but I don't know if anybody actually uses that feature, but it's available to you if you want to can you use manager state in something other than S3 bucket. I mean, if you look at their competitors, all their competitors, the, the main competitors are the, the uh, cloud proprietary offerings. So I think, I think it's a good focus for them to focus on delivering value to companies who want multi-cloud in a single product. Yeah, I think, I think multi-cloud is the way that most of these open source companies are going to be able to succeed uh, against native cloud solutions uh, unless they get, you know, GKE adopts everything and just runs everything on GKE and Anthos. I think this is really the only way they survive long-term. I don't know. Um, who knows? I mean, they're worth $5 billion before they announced this, so that's apparently someone's got, <laughs> someone's got a lot of confidence in them. Well, so, multi-cloud is also the same thing as hybrid cloud, right? So a lot of companies and enterprises are we're using them for the hybrid cloud use case where I wanted it in my data center and I wanted it in AWS uh, or GCP or Azure. Now I can say I'm multi-cloud by doing all of those clouds plus my hybrid data center. So I get kind of the exactly. best of all worlds by becoming multi-cloud. Yep. Yeah. But we, uh, we do like the uh, HashiCorp products. We're big Terraform fans. But uh, curious to see when they start incorporating some of the TFE features into this capability. I'd like to see that one. But uh, they did say that uh, after console, Vault will be the second product they launch uh, for each. Oh, software. perfect. That'll actually be really good, yeah. yeah. I suspect that TFE will not come 
Um, and if it does, it'll be dead last just because there's so much overlap between their Terraform Enterprise offering and their Terraform Cloud offering. Like if you've used both tools, like it's the same tool. It's um, like it's, you know, they've they've really put a lot of development to the enterprise. So it's very similar. So do you think Nomad gets delivered before Terraform into HCP or the other way around? Like that's that's a hard bet. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I mean, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Like it's I think they'll continue with the Terraform cloud, but I don't think that they will really roll it into their the platform as much. Would you like to put a 2020 wager on Nomad coming to HCP in the next 12 months? Oh, I don't think no. Well, I, no, I mean, I wouldn't even put Vault <laughs> in that. You know, like it's, it's HashiCorp, man. I don't know when that stuff's actually gonna come. No way. I bet you got a Terraform 1.0 before you get Nomad. Oh, uh, yeah. no chance, no. But they'll sell it yeah. to you before it's ready anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. No, there was a so the during HashiConf there was a just a pile on complaining about HashiCorp. Um, during there's during the conference there was a whole session dedicated to. Uh, what it takes to get to 1.0 and I didn't agree with anything they said during it and like, it was it was it was problematic for me it was like you know the the big point they were trying to say was that 1.0 does not equal ready for production which okay but then everything else that went into what they're trying to do I don't know if I agree with that's rough if 1.0 is not ready for production what what does it mean for them so the the point wasn't trying to say that 1.0 is not necessarily not ready for production or saying that to be ready for production doesn't have to be 1.0. Mm. Well, so, I agree with I agree with that point, but yeah. I also agree with the fact I also don't like the fact that they went from .11 to .12 when it was a breaking change. I think that's that's garbage. That's the that's what it means, right? To not be 1.0 is that they get to make breaking changes. And that was so that was I guess the, where I had most of their disagreements that they were on one hand saying this is what's important, what we need to factor in, what we need to add. As, and what to have our vision to to get to 1.0, but none of that customer relationship, none of that what the customer would want out of a stable service was mentioned or or considered. Interesting. So, while I appreciate that it's hard to get something to 1.0, which is what they were trying to say, these are all the things that we need to address and fix on the back end, have a roadmap. You're still not really considering the customer, and I think that's sort of telling for HatchyCorp. All right, moving on to AWS. Uh, I have now ordered one of these. I hope to get it in the next few weeks, but they have released the AWS Snowcone, which is a small, lightweight, rugged, secure edge computing device uh, for data storage and data transfer between your desk and Amazon's cloud. Uh, this is the newest and smallest, but mightiest member of the Amazon Snow family. Uh, Snowcone, which is designed for the edge computing, is very. it only weighs 4.5 pounds and includes eight terabytes of usable storage. Uh, it's uh, nine inches long by six inches wide and three inches tall. Uh, it can be used in a variety of environments, including desktops, data centers, messenger bags, vehicles, and in conjunction with drones. Uh, it does have uh, use USB-C power. Uh, you can get an AC power adapter for that, or it can use an optional battery to power it, such as USB-C. Uh, the device comes with a tamper-evident and tamper-resistant and uses a trusted platform module to ensure both security and full chain of custody of your data. Uh, it does also support the ability to run up to a two-CPU 4-gigabit instance uh, on the device. Uh, so you can use that for doing encryption or other type of processing before you push it into the snow cone and then ship it back to Amazon Web Services. Uh, it does use the e-ink display just like the bigger uh, ones do. So if you are always impressed by how they use for all those Kindle or uh, 1.0 Kindles, uh, you now know they're using this. And the service fee of the job is uh, $60, which includes five free days free. Uh, and every day over that, you get uh, $6 worth. Uh, but don't lose this device. This will cost you about $2,000. So... Hopefully my kids don't run off with Maya when it arrives at my house in the next week. What is your next use case for this? 
I really just got it for you guys here at the show because I wanted to play with it. So I oh. ordered it. <laughs> I'll, I'll put some data on it. I'll ship it back and see if it magically appears in an S3 bucket somewhere. So, I mean, $2,000 for eight terabytes of data, two CPUs, four gigs of memory is not so bad, actually. I mean, it doesn't have a video. <laughs> it do- <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have a video card or any any way to display output. Uh, but uh, I lost it. Yeah, I lost it again. I lost it again. <laughs> Uh, but this does open up a lot of really great use cases because sometimes the snow, the snow, uh, you know, the other one, whatever it's called, uh, is a little big, you know, because it's it's pretty massive. It's a full size of a tower that's, you know, durable and portable. Uh, so sometimes you just need a smaller drop. Eight, ter- eight terabytes is quite a bit of data for a lot of companies. And this is the perfect sized snowball snowball. Yes. Thank you. I wonder if they were frustrated because they couldn't use Snowflake. Oh, uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Maybe that explains why they're out to kill them as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, when, I, when my snow when my snow cone gets here, you guys can come touch it. We can play football with it because it's is rugged, it, right? Yeah. Is it going to come in different colors? Just Ooh. just not the yellow one. <laughs> <laughs> Would be interesting to test its uh, ruggedness. A little game of football. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> I'll play. <laughs> Amazon Aurora Global Databases now support read replica write forwarding. Uh, this supports the ability from a secondary region to the primary region uh, for the writes to be directed on the Amazon backbone. Uh, this greatly simplifies the development of your application code, meaning you don't have to now tell your application there's a primary database and a secondary database. It just whatever one it talks to that's closest to it, it'll then take that data and transport it to the proper primary. Uh, Aurora handles all the setup of that connection and it makes it really secure using TLS. Uh, and latency is typically less than a second uh, to secondary regions for low latency global data reads. Uh, so that's pretty great. Yeah, this is neat. now now we, now we can just plug in our legacy apps that have no concept of clusters or masses and read replicas and things. Plug it straight into Aurora and just let Amazon really manage the the uh, database at scale. It's cool. It feels like multi-master only better, since if you're writing to the master, you probably don't have to wait for the write to uh, to get forwarded right before it. Didn't comment in the article when it acknowledges the right of the block. So I don't know if like once it handles it on the transport layer that it then says that's good enough. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if it confirms the right at the secondary or if it has to get all the way to the primary before it confirms. They didn't say I'd imagine it has to get to the primary before it confirms. I assume so as well. If it starts at the primary, it doesn't have to wait till it gets to the read replica. Correct. So that's pretty cool because you can yeah, you can scale out to a, a you have a lot of read replicas and you get the benefit. It acts just like a two node multi-master. Yeah, I think this is pretty cool and really solves that legacy problem that Jonathan mentioned. Yeah. And even just people who, you know, even if it's not legacy, most people develop their apps without the thought of worrying about what happens when we get our app gets so successful that we have to worry about this. And then now you don't have to go refactor it. Yeah. For all the lazy devs waving my hand like this is fantastic i don't want to yeah. consider that like will it still work when i have a lot of transactions work great in dev yeah and a lot a lot of times it's uh you know unless the driver natively supports this capability you're asking the dev team to do something that's really out alien to themselves because they're used to just plugging in a very simple sdk for the database driver they're using and then move along um, so when you tell them, oh, no, you can't use that, you have to now write natively to the database. They're like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> it's always nice when uh, they don't have to do that. I just want to make sure that when you're doing your performance testing, all the writes are happening to the uh, read replica to ensure that you're not getting fake performance that you're not going to get in real life after it moves to production. Yeah, I mean, the reality is nobody really wants to use a database on the other side of the country. 
as their as their primary database anyway. So I guess if you can put up with slow writes and fast reads, then that's pretty cool. Well, another really cool feature I think is uh, the new Amazon EC2 auto scaling uh, capability that lets you support instant refreshing uh, within an auto scaling group. Uh, you can now trigger configuration updates such as moving to a new AMI and changing instance types uh, in your ASGs. Uh, you can make this change either gradually or by updating your instances in a gradual uh, method. Uh, this way is done previously was with a custom script or a building uh, system in Lambda to help uh, kill old instances. So this is a really great way to make sure you don't have that auto-scaling group that has, you know, one server that's been running for six years and the other servers are all auto-scaling all the time and you never retire that one that's pretty old. Uh, to do that in the past, you either go kill it manually or run that script like I mentioned. Now that's going to be handled for you by Amazon automatically in their policies. It's one of those things, right? Yeah, all of us are excited. <laughs> yeah, all three of us have been waiting for this. Yeah. <laughs> Can't believe it's taken such a long time, right? This is such a such a crucial piece of orchestration as switching sizes or switching base images. Like, why? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the fact that this is coming out in 2020 just is mind-boggling. This is how, you know, like, everyone I know has been frustrated by this. But I think that, you know, obviously there's a million features when you when you start a whole new cloud delivery, a whole new, you know, infrastructure delivery model. There's a thousand features that you want and you get them as they come. But this is a this is a funny one because it's it's not like I've been waiting so long for it. It's every single time I need it, I go try. I'm certain it's there and I go try to find it in the documentation and I can't. It's like, why can't I find it? Well, we're I want to see like the trouble ticket. Like I know it was an old crusty like trouble ticket number seven. <laughs> you know, and it's some product guy is very excited to close it out. It's awesome. Yeah, totally. I'm pretty sure I wrote, opened this PFR like six years ago. So, <laughs> you know, my email address at my old, old, old company, uh, I'm sure has a notification. This has finally been added and I'm super happy at that company. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm very happy to see this one. We were kind of making fun of, uh, you know, Kubernetes and Google kind of adding some similar features not too long ago. Then I think we maybe overlooked the fact that Amazon didn't have it either. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Whoops. It happens. All right. Well, you can also simplify your serverless best practices this week uh, with the new Lambda Power Tools. Uh, in the Amazon serverless lens for the well architected framework, they suggest best practices for observability such as structured logging, distributed tracing, and monitoring of metrics. Uh, with this new release of the Power Tools, they give you an opinionated way of implementing those capabilities. And the Lambda Power Tools has several features, including a tracer. Uh, which provides a simple way to send traces from functions to X-Ray, a logger to uh, provision a custom Python logger class that outputs structured JSON uh, to uh, CloudWatch logs, and metrics, uh, which makes collecting custom metrics from your application simple without the need to make synchronous requests to external systems, uh, all available to you now in a very opinionated framework called the Lambda Power Tools uh, to help make your life easier. Yeah, this is one of those basic things that, you know, I when I first read it, I'm like, I don't know if I care, but then as I started thinking about my past implementations and stuff like I've done some really terrible things and uh, you know, like that, you know, this is uh, at least a well-established opinionated pattern that people can adopt for, for developing on serverless applications. And it's a big question that a lot of people have when they're moving to serverless is how, how to do some of these things. So, I'm just a bit grateful to see the end of print statements in, in Lambda Python functions yeah. because I guess using the, the Python logger has been a real chore. As soon as you put a date time thing in there, it just all falls apart. And so now, <laughs> yeah, now, now we, can, uh, we can have a good pattern to follow. Yeah. 
I see, uh, you know, this is one of those things that's super win-win, I think, for our Amazon and the customers. Uh, you know, Amazon, you get this um, customers depending on a feature, which then gets them to integrate with other proprietary services like CloudWatch Logs and X-Ray, et cetera, um, but also benefits all those companies who want to have a single cloud strategy and benefit from the tight integration between the services. So this is super cool. I was going to say, it's really super cool as long as you agree with the opinion that they gave you. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully their opinion about their platform is pretty good. Because right, it's all their tools. Yeah, it's a weird choice when they, Amazon uses that a lot, where they talk about opinionated solutions uh, for things. And I'm like, yeah, but if it's the best practice for your solution based on what you think is best, I, I don't really care if it's an opinion. I think it's just a best practice. So but they, uh, well, they, do, they do have a weird line they, they play on that. But a lot of engineers, like that's the, like when you're trying to adopt a new thing, like serverless, you know, that's the first question. Like, how, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? And if you don't have an opinionated solution, everyone sort of goes and reinvents the wheel. Yeah. And, you know, and then they, if they reinvent the wheel poorly, they'll take, they'll blame the whole serverless platform for that. You know, it's like the performance wasn't there. You know, like I, I've heard people complain about how expensive Lambda could be. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. How how did you make Lambda expensive? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, you know, so I know that there's just some of these things that, you know, catches people out. So having having an example to at least to start with, and then you can deviate from there on your own as you learn more. It's great. Yeah, and I, I kind of like that better than best practice, because best practice is such a loaded term. So best practice for who? For what case? You know, is, Different people have different opinions on the best way to do things, but there's a lot of really good ways to do things that have different cost benefits based on, and then you pick the one that fits your business use case best. I think it really solves for the things that you don't know, you don't know. When you start off, you know, you can start coding. It's an easy Python function. You, you think it's okay to do something a certain way, but you realize six months later that now you can't integrate with other services as easy as, as easily as you would have liked to. And so just because you were not aware of the potential integrations in the future, now, now they're at least giving you a pattern which is like extensible and, and uh, is more likely to, to be um, something you can go with going forward. Yeah, start from here and then make improvements. But starting from here is going to save you a lot of heartache. Yeah, it's like don't make these mistakes. At least start from, start from a good place. Yeah, I mean, the only real opinion I care about in Lambda is Ben Kehoe's. But. <laughs> Hang on, there's something on the screen there. No, no. <laughs> All right. Going on to our friends in Asia. Uh, AI specialists continue to be the high-demand job opportunity uh, of the century. A 74% of annual growth rate in hiring for AI specialists has resulted in a lack of talent in the Azure machine learning space. And so they are partnering with Audacity to offer you a scholarship and new online courses to learn machine learning using the Azure toolset. Uh, this collaboration with Udacity is launching uh, today. And it's a course for both beginner and advanced users, uh, as well as the new scholarship program for those who've passed the free course with Flying Colors can get access to a mini nano degree program for free. Uh, for the first 100 students who pass the course. So there you go. I think I need to take it so I could talk more about machine learning when we're on this uh, podcast. I think if I were to take it, I would take BigQuery over Azure or, or SageMaker, one of the two. I like Udacity. Has um, anyone else done any classes on there? Just me. I have done classes on Udacity. Okay. Um, I like the platform. I like the content. Um, it's pretty great. Yeah, I did for this. a lot of different things. 
I did a statistics and probability class and something else. I can't remember why exactly. It was just, you know, <laughs> testing it out when it, when it first launched. It was pretty, pretty cool. 99% of students say the same thing you did. <laughs> well, fr free education's, you know, yeah. it's worth something. <laughs> and four out of five dentists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nine out of 10 cats. <laughs> well, Azure is also uh, simplifying your deployments uh, with a new declarative framework for ARM, which is Azure Resource Manager Templates. Uh, this is their answer to cloud formation uh, for those of you who are not in the Azure space. The ARM template language takes the form of a JSON and is a direct representation of the resource schema. Uh, over the last few months, they have renewed their focus on ARM templates deployments. Uh, apparently, they got the same message the CloudFormation team did is that uh, IAC is important and you're not doing a good enough job. Uh, and they've delivered several new capabilities uh, to simplify your IAC journey. Uh, the first one is that originally they've always had a quick start gallery of over 800 sample templates available to you on the web that you had to go Google for. Uh, but now they've integrated those directly into the RM tools uh, for VS Code. So now if you're using Visual Studio Code, you can automatically get those snippets defined uh, with IntelliSense, colorization, and ARM template outlines and comments. Uh, they also support a new pre-deployment impact analysis CLI tool, which allows you to see the impact of any of your changes before you run them in production, uh, similar to like a Terraform plan. And they also have a new ability to handle the deployment scripts, which handle the last mile scenarios. And in the world of Azure, uh, the last mile is all that nasty PowerShell and Bash scripting that you had to do to actually make your instance function uh, at the very end, which we use Cloud Init for in the AWS world. And then automated end-to-end -end provisioning, leveraging management permissions hierarchy and Azure subscriptions to ensure separations of environments, applications, billing, or security. Uh, and they have a continued focus on ARM template code uh, and open sourcing those to you uh, over the next few months. So well, how did people do it before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they went and clicked on the GUI, Jonathan, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a ton of I mean, just totally required functionality in here that you wonder how we got along without it. But... It leaves, uh, makes me more confident that this is a tool that's going to be useful for customers coming up. They were able to uh, release all of this functionality. You know, Azure is very difficult to use. Like that was, it, I had free money sitting over there for a project to use on Azure and I still ended up not using it only because it was just way more difficult to use. And, you know, things like the Terraform provider at the time just, you know, didn't support all the actions that I needed for the API. So infrastructure and code just really wasn't possible before, before they started releasing this. And I guess I did not know they had that many sample templates before, but um, that's because they're probably hard to find. And so it's this, this level of support is going to hopefully do wonders for adoption. Were you using ARM or were you using Terraform? I did not know of ARM at the time. So it was just Terraform okay. and cool. then Terraform and then manual stuff in the console. Um, for yeah. experimentation, um, but I didn't get very far. So, we're using Terraform for some pretty complex environments right now on Azure, uh, but admittedly, still finding bugs in their uh, provisioner provider. Well, I mean, how long ago was that project you were doing on Azure, Ryan? A couple of years. Oh, ago. it was a while back. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's come. The, it's come a long way. Yeah, come a long way. So, do you, do you want to know my my lightning round quip for this? If it moved it, sure. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, I'm not going to tell you. Cause yeah. <laughs> no, no, I was uh, going to joke about it. In, in Azure, it's infrastructure is clicks, not infrastructure is code. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. 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 <laughs> That's such a shame you're not going to win tonight. I know. Yep, Justin's, yeah. Justin's got it already. I can predict it. <laughs> Ryan's got it already. I can predict it. Peter's got it already. I can predict it. Jonathan's got it already. I can predict it. There you go. <laughs> and that's how the sausage is made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Just again, that, that, statistics class is, that statistics class is coming in, in handy again for yeah. you. I see. All right. <laughs> Moving to uh, Google, who's uh, getting ready for their Google Cloud Next digital event here in July. Uh, first of all, is the fact that you're bringing modern TLS capabilities to the Google Cloud with TLS 1.3. Uh, they're moving this to, uh, sorry, uh, Google recently rolled out the TLS 1.3 as a default for all new and existing cloud CDN and global load balancing customers. Uh, this uses modern ciphers and capabilities to ensure that your TLS is at the highest level of security and ensures uh, things with forward secrecy as a baseline for your ciphers. Uh, TLS 1.3 is a great combination of security and performance without sacrificing one or the other. One or the other. Uh, TLS 1.3 can have outsized benefits such as congested networking traffic uh, reductions, higher latency connections, especially cellular or mobile devices, uh, have a reduced handshake around trips, and then lower power devices uh, have a much easier time handling the TLS 1.3 with the curated list of ciphers. Uh, they highlighted network uh, Netflix, which had a blog post recently who adopted TLS 1.3 and observe improvements in user experience around playback delay, uh, which is typically network-related, and rebuffers, which are often CPU-related to, to TLS uh, in their testing. So TLS 1.3 is a great uh, new advantage TLS that if you're still implementing TLS 1.2, uh, you now have the advantage of looking forward to implementing TLS 1.3. <laughs> when Amazon and Azure support it, that's when the, the real change will happen. Well, and all my services, I'll still have to allow... TLS 1.0 negotiation just because, you know, my grandmother still won't get off of uh, Internet Explorer 6. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, hopefully when uh, Microsoft decides to implement TLS 1.3, they do it in a better way than they did TLS 1.2 or 1.1. <laughs> Maybe make that the default first and then fail backwards versus, you know, go for the lowest one first and then go stronger. That's the typical pattern. Third time's charm. That's interesting that Netflix yeah. encrypt the video streams. You'd think that that would be the last thing they'd waste compute on i would assume that it's a concern about piracy yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't want that data to be capturable on the raw and then decrypted or decoded and then put on the internet although that happens all the time anyway so i don't know that's that big of a concern yeah but i mean maybe they have agreements with people who they license content from that it will be encrypted but drm is a separate concern they could the 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 file itself could be encrypted outside of the transport encryption is is kind of what i was getting at hmm Maybe it's a privacy thing. Maybe they don't want people sniffing on uh, what you're watching today. Mm, that could be. Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, a lot of the smart TVs out there actually track what you're doing. And they yeah. actually take sampling of your screen and they can determine what show you're watching. And they, they take all that data and send it back to your TV manufacturer and sell that to a big data company. So there may be something related to that as well. And that's why I disconnected my Samsung TV from the internet. Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, the next announcement from Google is uh, the Google Cloud is announcing the Apogee adapter for Envoy is now in beta. Uh, Apogee is, of course, their uh, API gateway solution, which lets you centrally govern or manage APIs that are consumed within your enterprise or exposed to partners and third parties, uh, providing centralized API publishing, visibility, governance, and usage analytics. With the new Apogee adapter for Envoy, you can extend Envoy's capabilities to include API management so developers can expose the services behind Envoy as APIs. Uh, the API, uh, sorry, Apogee adapter for Envoy lets developers verify OAuth tokens for API keys, check API consumer base quoted against API products, and collect API usage analytics. Uh, the new capabilities takes advantage of Envoy filter for external author authorization designed to allow Envoy to delegate authorization decisions for calls managed by Envoy to an external system. Uh, and that is pretty awesome if you're using Apogee. Uh, Apogee, of course, is an acquisition that Google did a few years ago. Uh, that takes advantage of on your, your on-prem needs as well as your Google Cloud and a hybrid capability 
Uh, they do also mention this is compatible with Istio and Google Anthos uh, and is a standard available to you today. I think that's probably going to be the real powerful part of this is that that integration where you can automatically have your services register behind an API gateway solution like Apogee. So that's pretty cool. Apogee's always been a really good product. I was sort of sad when Google bought, it, bought them. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> of course, you can always go with Kong nowadays uh, as kind of the new, the successor to Apogee as the one standalone API gateway company that's uh, still out there. Because everyone else, I think, has been bought. I think someone bought Mule, it was bought by Salesforce, and then you have uh, Apogee got bought, and there's a couple others that aren't really that popular. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when my server is out of disk space, I want that notification to get to me for sure. And so, you know, typically I would use webhooks in the Google Cloud. And of course, webhooks only work if my server is listening for the webhook, which is since it's down because it's out of disk space, it can't actually receive. Uh, and so eventually that message will get thrown away. Uh, but if that is not good enough for you, Google has a new offering for you, which is the ability to use PubSub as a new notification channel in cloud monitoring. Uh, this new notification channel type uh, is in beta, and this is an integration that lets you create automated and programmatic workflows in response to alerts. Uh, using PubSub as your channel makes it easy to integrate with third-party providers for alerting and incident response workflows, and you can use PubSub as a notification channel through the API and Google Cloud Console. Uh, typically, the key reason to use webhooks versus PubSub is one that delivery guarantee. Uh, also, the notion of implicit versus explicit invocations, and of course, authentication methods available to you via PubSub versus webhooks if you want that to be authenticated. It seems like a great way to find out in the future that something went wrong in the past. So I have a pretty good horror story that makes me like this a whole lot, which is, you know, we had a very large distributed program that uh, was, you know, available in multiple regions, and it was configured to automatically fail over um, when, when needed based on health checks. Um, and so it was pretty spectacular when the network died in such a way that it could not, did not receive any alerting signal. And so it just did not fail over. And so it failed in this very obvious, terrible way. So, uh, you know, like, the, I mean, there's still problems with PubSub as far as if that's local and you're, you're, it's still within the blast radius. You're right. It's going to still be later. But on one, uh, you know, when you think about trying to do like replaying to transactions and capturing that kind of thing, like this adds a lot more capabilities there than, than you would have for just a webhook. That's fair. I, I like the fact that you, you get to acknowledge the fact that you receive something and they'll retry it. But but even then, it's, you don't you don't have an indefinite history in a PubSub system. You may have a few days or a few hours, depending on the, the volume of traffic. So, I mean, it, it solves for quick retries, maybe, or or historical fact finding or something. But I mean, there are advantages to it from an RCA perspective because there are some scenarios where you know something happens at two in the morning, uh, but because that thing that happened also impacted the webhook, you don't have the data where you know later on because it was in PubSub. 
I now have guaranteed delivery. I can actually get those events after my system's back up and running after it either auto healed on its own, uh, which is the worst scenario because now I have no idea what happened because no one actually saw it. It's the tree. Did the tree in the forest make a noise when it fell? Question. Uh, you know, so there are some advantages to it, but I agree with you. It, it doesn't really help you prevent an outage per se. It might help you not have to get woken up. <laughs> Especially if uh, the pub sub <laughs> is to my phone for paging and I just don't get them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for those of you who have uh, ventured down the Kubernetes path and have been frustrated by the lack of the fact that you cannot do more than 5,000 nodes in open source Kubernetes, uh, GKE has your back. Uh, with a partnership with Bayer Crop Sciences, uh, they have developed a 15,000 node GKE cluster, pushing the limits in major ways never before seen. Uh, the 15,000 nodes are the most important nodes of any cloud-based Kubernetes service and three times the nodes are nodes supported by open source Kubernetes, at least as far as we know. There might be someone out there who has more, but they've, they've kept themselves quiet and shamed in the back corner. Uh, this scale is useful for large internet scale services, simplified infrastructure management by having fewer clusters to manage, batch processing, and allows you to absorb spikes. Uh, fun use cases about how they are partnering with Bayer to go from 5,000 nodes to 15,000 nodes to do things like crop predictions and all kinds of things around dealing with crop yields. Uh, and they had some interesting lessons learned from scaling up uh, a cluster like this. The first one being that scaling the supporting service of the cluster is actually just as important as the cluster itself. Uh, things like <laughs> supporting Spanner and things with more nodes. And then another uh, important aspect was they leveraged preemptive VMs. Uh, this was a cost-effective way to run for 24 hours, but since you get evicted once every 24 hours, you had to make it possible to use BCS checkpointing, uh, their cloud Google Cloud storage environment every 15 minutes. So that way they could handle any type of failure or being preempted at any time to support this. Now, I my first thought when I read this was... Uh, well, thank goodness they deployed that GKE upgrade methodology because if I had to deploy 15,000 new nodes and this nodes and then move my workload over, I might get really angry. <laughs> Why? Why? Yeah. What benefit, Why? right? To Why? run all 15,000 yeah. nodes in one cluster. What is right. the benefit? Why? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because I can, right? Because it's there. There's certain things that don't span cross clusters, right? Like the, 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 the integrated DNS proxies and the service discovery, all of that is cluster specific. And I mean, I don't want to make this argument because it's, I think it would be a stretch, but you know, like there's, I can see some advantage, but I just the engineer or the on-call engineer on me wants to, you know, reduce my blast radius. So this seems like a terrible idea. I think in their use case, when you read the article, they talk about, this is really a machine learning capability to learn about different gene sequencing and stuff like that. So they need to be able to scale up massively. And to be able to get to 15,000 nodes, it means they can process this data that much faster and actually get answers to these questions they have on protein strands or COVID-19 or all kinds of different things they might be doing uh, with something like this is what they were kind of saying. I would just hope that, like, this is obviously scale out because 15,000 nodes is a lot of nodes. But when you're, when you're depending on GKE being able to scale one cluster that large, it's kind of like the old school scaling up because what happens when your job needs 15,000 and one nodes, right? You, you're now everything breaks because you can't span nodes with your job. So maybe think about what you're doing with your workload and see if there's ways to partition that work into multiple smaller clusters. You just open a PFR to Google and say, I now need 20,000. <laughs> Is that a soft limit? <laughs> Cause I really yeah. like to go 15,001. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, for those of you, you know, depending on how Google Cloud Next uh, is setting up their sessions, if they're interactive and you can ask questions, uh, there is a session with Bayer where they're going to go over this. Uh, this is app 310 on August 25th. Uh, they will be detailing their journey on Google Kubernetes to 15,000 nodes in detail with Google. 
And Jonathan, if they can ask questions, you can go ask why at the session. It just feels to me more like Everest. Like, why did you climb it? Because it's there. Yeah. I see the advantages. Ryan raises some useful points, I guess. But imagine this wasn't a containerized workload and you were just launching compute. People have launched compute clusters with this many nodes. Right. Or, you know, or millions of cores and things like that. But we don't, we don't, we don't sort of call out that AWS or, or Google uh, are managing potentially millions of virtual machines. So, I mean, I, I, in a way, I don't want to have to worry about the cluster still. It's, I'm, still I'm still in the camp that I, I want to be able to launch containers like I can launch compute instances or serverless functions. I don't want to have to think about the, um, the supporting infrastructure. I just want to give them the work and then let them manage it. Well, and you assume that Google has a much larger cluster running their cloud run environment, right? Because 15,000, maybe they, maybe they divide it up more for blast radius reasons, but... Um, yeah, you would assume that Google has some pretty massive clusters too. But yeah, I don't. I don't think I would make the assumption that they've got one bigger, um, just because most workloads don't require this contiguous workload. And so while you have, you can launch a job on you know twenty thousand servers, can you actually launch that job to where it's orchestrating the individual processes across the thing? Like it's you know it's a little bit different mm. when you're talking about launching Kubernetes across 15,000 nodes versus you're talking about the workload that's running in containers on top of Kubernetes and that workload. What are the underlying systems of Kubernetes? Is, is Zookeeper one of those? I don't. <laughs> no, uh, Zookeeper. <laughs> <laughs> it's at CD, yeah. Oh, it's at CD, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, you, so, yeah. I mean, at CD or Zookeeper at 15,000 nodes sounds like a horrible, horrible world to live in. <laughs> at least etcd stops you from doing the dumb that zookeeper will allow, allow you to do that's true which is sort of the nice thing about it maybe maybe this is the first customer of hcp uh, console they're <laughs> <laughs> orchestrating their cluster based on uh, in aws to run their orchestrated yeah, exactly. cluster <laughs> exactly <laughs> we're multi cloud exactly uh, all right well google has uh, one last announcement for us which is that they have opened their new region in jakarta uh, this is now open, which brings the best of the GCP closer to their customers and users in Indonesia. Uh, this offers low latency access to data and apps, and companies doing business in Indonesia can accelerate their digital transformation. The region has three cloud zones, uh, and this makes it the 24th region for Google Cloud. Uh, all of the standard set of services, including Compute Engine, Kubernetes, App Engine, Bigtable, Cloud SQL, Cloud Spanner, and many more are available to you in this region. So robust offering for you if you're in Indonesia. Uh, the funny comment I saw was from the register, which had the headline, Indonesia's capital is literally sinking. Google just opened a new data center there. Now, the fact that they think that Google won't kill this product before that sinks into the ocean, you know, is probably misguided, but that's okay. You think they should add while supplies last to the, uh, <laughs> the region? Can you pay more for like placement groups that are at the top of the racks? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're giving away all our best material, Ryan. Too too early in the, in the show. Yeah, no, I know, yeah. I'm giving right now. That's tiebreaker. That's tiebreaker material right there. Nice. All right. Well, that is it uh, for the main show. Peter, will you take us to the lightning round? All right. Amazon SES can now send notifications when the delivery of an email is delayed. I mean, if I didn't know it was delayed already because I didn't receive it, I guess I now can be notified it's delayed. Appreciate that. Just not by email. Because it's will delayed. my notification also be delayed? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As your storage account failover is now generally available. What happened when it failed earlier? Where's my data? 
I love the word generally. It generally means it doesn't always mean always, does it? Yeah. It's generally no. available. Yeah. More often there, than not. Maybe when you need it. <laughs> maybe probably. not. Yeah. 80% of the time it's available 100% of the time. <laughs> On the premium tier. <laughs> uh, <yes. laughs> AWS Deep, Deep Composer announces the launch of Chartbusters, a monthly challenge for developers to showcase their machine learning skills. Coming to you live from the Billboard Top 100, the classical music showcase of Chartbusters <laughs> yeah. from Amazon Deep Composer. Because the first challenge is classical music, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> That's about the only thing it works well with, isn't it? I, I think that might be it. I, I haven't seen anybody do anything other than classical music with yeah. it. Yeah. My robot band is not coming along, so hopefully these challenges really help me out. <laughs> yeah, really. Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility adds regex indexing and support for null characters in strings. If it's null, do I really need to care about it? It's yet another NoSQL solution that I cannot put data in. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have that pesky problem Mongo does, just losing data randomly. But. <laughs> well, then how is it compatible? <laughs> right? <I Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, no, this isn't working. It should be Amazon Document DB with better than MongoDB compatibility. <laughs> My MongoDB loses that data. Announcing extended term reservation for the Azure HBV2 virtual machine. Be careful that I don't change the terms further, Peter. Ooh. <laughs> Azure Cosmos DB Transport Layer Security 1.2 Enforcement starts on July 29th, 2020. Because when you break that .NET driver, I'm going to kick your app to the Cosmos. Are they doing this just so they can get, you know, get this out before the 1.3 is everywhere? I mean, 1.3 was certified last year. So, I mean, technically everyone is late. Google's just the first one. And I actually at uh, Calm to see what's up with it. Because S2N supports uh, TLS 1.3, but it has not made it into any AWS services yet. Mm -hmm. Curious about this now. Although forward secrecy is in TLS 1.2. Uh, they have a, a SSL profile for it, uh, but I don't know why they haven't rolled to 1.3. Hmm. Well, speaking of MongoDB compatibility, Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility adds... 16 additional Faster Amazon CloudWatch. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't read it, dude. <laughs> speaking of starting that one over, speaking of MongoDB compatibility, Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility adds 16 additional Amazon CloudWatch metrics for monitoring MongoDB op counters, connections, cursors, operations on documents, and index cache hits. I mean, the amount of time they spent trying to make this thing compatible, they could have bought Mongo. <laughs> I, want a, I want a CloudWatch metric for how compatible it is. Right? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Nice. Yeah. Amazon Coretto for Alpine Linux is now in preview. Why does that have to be a feature? Like, can't can we just deploy Coretto binaries on an Alpine base? Like, it was a little weird to me. Like, was there something special about Alpine that Coretto needed to be modified for? I don't, I don't quite understand this one. Yeah. It's probably missing. I don't know. I'd have to do research. But yeah, Alpine's probably missing a lot of the the kernel functionality. But I got no witty comeback for something, something, yeah, coffee, right. Alpine. I got nothing. You're adding good value for our listeners, even though you're not going to win the lightning ring. <laughs> Maybe he's got two more chances. <laughs> no, I, I think it's over. <laughs> <laughs> 
ELB lifecycle events now available with Amazon ECS services registered with multiple target groups. Uh, because I'd love to know which of the 25 target groups is causing my instance to be killed with a health check. Thanks. Yeah. No, it's great because now with the with the 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 lifecycle events, the errors in one target group can kill the kill the uh, containers in all target groups. Uh, and finally, detailed cost management data is now available on AWS console mobile application. And Amazon finally tapped into the executive needs. Mobile apps for worthless features. <laughs> I need to, I'll have to upgrade my phone. I don't think it can handle my Amazon bill. Now you can vacation to the beach and still complain about how things are costing too much. Oh, I'm so sorry, Justin. You worked so hard on that and that one stupid MongoDB comment on the CloudWatch metrics wins it for Jonathan. Oh, oh. thank you. <laughs> the comeback kid. <laughs> yes. All right. Mark that one regrettingly. Sorry. <laughs> that was like that was like one of those one of those ten round boxing matches where you're up ninety yep. nine to ninety on the scorecard and the ref stops it in the tenth round for no reason. <laughs> boxing one of the few sports that's actually happening right now, so it's okay. So we'll let it go. Yeah. Uh, well, we have things coming up as usual. The AWS Cloud Containers Conference we mentioned last week is still coming up on July 9th. Uh, and then the AWS Amplify Days, for those of you who still are puzzled like us about what Amplify does, is July 15th and 16th. As well as Google Next uh, Digital is now coming up very quickly here in the middle of July. I don't have the exact dates in front of me, uh, but you can register for that today. They just released their schedule for all 12 weeks. Uh, so you can go register for your or reserve your time in these different sessions, which I assume because they're just going to all be pre recorded, that's kind of silly. but whatever, I went and clicked a bunch of boxes and picked sessions I wanted to go to. Uh, so then I can miss them because I'll have meetings scheduled on top of them. <laughs> yeah. There's no way I could reserve 12 weeks worth of uh, conference time. So those are available to you uh, out there to check out. So they need to know who's showing up to each thing so they can fit them into the right GKE cluster. Right. They need to know how many they need for that 10, that 15,000 uh, no GKE cluster. You know, how many of those do I'm I just, need? I'm just uh, expecting to try to register. I'm sorry, that class is full. <laughs> you're on the wait list peter and then when you get to the website it'll, it'll pop up a thing oh and those cloudflare ddos warnings yeah <laughs> hold on you had to wait a couple of minutes i did actually see when i was registering that there is actually going to be a keynote by thomas curian so we will actually have a prediction show uh for oh google cool cloud it's it's on the first week uh so yeah be prepared for that start with thinking about your google cloud predictions what those might be as we will we'll do a draft well this has been a fantastic week in the cloud we will see you next week good night bye everybody Later. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.